Well, so we're in Acts chapter 8 here today. And I'm going to start off uh, just by talking about group projects. Group projects, all right? Did anybody here in school ever have to get roped into a group project? Anybody ever? Okay, all right. Um, Here's the thing about group projects. Now, I know some of you, when you think about group projects, whether it's at work, whether it's at school or whatever, you get so excited. It's butterflies in your heart when you think about group projects because you're like, that's so fun. I didn't have to look at a book anymore. I didn't have to do all that. Instead, I got to be with some friends and we talk about what we're going to do and we, you know, get our project together and everybody's involved and it's fun and it's interactive and it's social. I was the opposite kid. I was the kid who hated group projects. Now, part of that is because I did well in school, and most of the time when I saw the opportunity for a group project, all I saw was my grades going down. <laughs> because it, it never, it's, I guess it was a little different if you could pick, pick the partners that you were going to work on, in, in the, you know, work with in the group project. Uh, but it was a very different thing if you were assigned these partners that you had to deal with in your group project. Because inevitably, you'd always end up with one or two kind of slacker kids that really didn't want to do anything. And so you're kind of carrying them along. It's like dead weight. It's like, okay, well, I'll do my part and your part too. And does anybody else feel that way? Maybe this is just confession time for me. Okay, there's a few. There's a few of you others, other cranky Grinches like me that had a problem with group projects. Um, but, but here's the thing. Um, like it or not... God is actually a God that uses group projects. Okay, and this is what I mean by that. Um, As we get into this little passage of Acts here today, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at a a new believer who has come to the Lord and he's he's heard from from this evangelist and he's got his life kind of turning around in the right direction. He starts moving, but then he gets to a spot where he can't really go any further and he actually needs somebody else to come in and kind of speak into his life. And I know in my own experience and in many of your experiences too, it usually takes a whole lot of people to kind of shape you into the person that you are. And God tends to do it in this method. And I think that there's a lesson to be learned as we'll see as we go through this and and look at this uh, together. Because whether we like it or not, if this is the way God does it, we need to embrace what he does and see if there's places that we can help Um, apply that into our lives, all right? Now, God certainly can do anything and everything all on his own. Uh, It could be in such a way where God would tell all of us, I am going to have a relationship with you. I am going to speak to you. I am going to, you know, directly interface with you only, and that's the way it's going to be. But that's not what God's chosen to do. It's not. Um, He uses other people. He includes us in doing his work, but he uses other people to shape us. And that's really a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? We'll see it as we look here in Acts chapter 8. Now, where we pick up, um, as I know we've got some visitors in with us here this week, um, as we've been going through Acts, we, last week what we looked at was the, uh, the martyrdom of Stephen, Okay, Stephen was one of the seven that had been selected to minister to the Greek-speaking widows um, in the church in Jerusalem. And he got an opportunity 
I guess you would call it, an opportunity to speak to the Sanhedrin, the council there. And he comes in and he preaches the gospel. And then ultimately he, he pronounces judgment on the council. They go berserk, drag him out of the city and stone him to death. All right. And that's where we pick up here in chapter 8. And the way that the, um, the verse breaks are for us, this first part of chapter, chapter 8 really belongs with the last, last uh, verse, but... That's not how it's broken up here in our Bibles. So if you look here at Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of his execution, meaning Stephen. And here's what it says next. It says, And there arose on that day, the day that Stephen was executed, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So what happened here next was that the religious leaders tried to move to crush this young church. Now if you've been here a few weeks ago, you saw that the, the, the plan that they had was, well, let's just wait and see. Let's just back off a little bit. They arrested the apostles. They wanted to kill them, but they realized that the crowds were on their side and there was all the political maneuvering going on and we looked at all that. And finally, Gamaliel stood up and said, hey, let's just see what happens. Let this thing run its course. But then with Stephen and with stoning him and that Rome didn't intervene, they're at the spot where they're like, let's just do it. Let's just, go, let's just crush it now. We can't wait any longer. This is a mess. So they've completely reversed their plan with this new, this new strategy now. And, it, and it, it's understandable because thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem by this point, thousands of people have become believers. And so their new plan is let's just terrify them. Let's scare them to death. Let's make them worry that if they are a Christian, they are under risk of arrest at any moment. And so what they do is, as it tells us here, one especially devoted person to this cause was a man named Saul. And he was given authority to go from house to house, arresting men and women who believed in Jesus. And we'll get back to his story in chapter 9. But as we move on here this morning, because this has happened, because this persecution is starting, and people are beginning to be scattered, we see here in verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Philip was also one of the seven men appointed to uh, serve the church he, with, with Stephen. He was one of the seven as well. And like many, he left Jerusalem when the persecution hit. But notice, even though he got kicked out of town, he continued to minister. He continued to share the gospel everywhere he, he would go. And it says here that he went down from Jerusalem. <coughs> excuse me. Down from Jerusalem. Um, just so you know, uh, Samaria is actually to the north of Jerusalem. We would probably say you would go up to Samaria. But for the Jews, everything was down from, from Jerusalem. That was the place of worship. That was the, the place, the city on the hill. That's what they viewed it as. There's the Temple Mount. So everything is down, okay? So he goes up here north to Samaria. 
And, and, and what's going on here is he begins to, to preach to these Samaritans. Now, you have to understand how different this is. The people of Samaria, the Samaritans, were looked down on by all the full-blooded Jews. All right? And just from the history end of things, that goes back about 750 years before this time, in 722 B.C., Israel was divided into two kingdoms. If you know your Bible history stuff, you'll know that under David and Solomon, there was a united kingdom. All 12 tribes had moved into the promised land. They had established this kingdom. They had made a king over them. First Saul, it didn't go so well, and then David, and then Solomon. During those years, they had all of that, right? They had the, they had the, the united kingdom, all 12 tribes, everybody there. Well, after Solomon came along, then what happened is the two, uh, the, the, the kingdom itself got split in half. Not even really half. Ten tribes went to the north and followed the northern kings. Two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, stayed in the south. All right, Jerusalem is, is down there in the area of Judah. And so that's what happened. It was split into a northern and southern kingdom. All right? And what God told them, uh, because none of them were following God at the time, but what God told them was, is, hey, you don't change what you're doing. I'm going to actually send a nation from somewhere else to exile you and take you out of the promised land. Only a few hundred years after they've, they've made it into the promised land, okay? And, and that's what happened. In 722, um, a few years leading up to that, Assyria came in and ca- essentially captured all of the northern kingdom and took, exiled them took, them, took them off in captivity. And what they did, uh, and this was a common uh, thing that Assyria would do when they would conquer an area, is they would go in and they would take all the people with skills, all of the people usually that were wealthy, that had businesses, that were leaders of the community, they would take all of them and pull them out and then drop them into other places throughout their empire where they needed that thing. So they came into a, a, a city and they take that out and they're like, hmm, you're a bronze worker. We need some bronze workers over here. And so they transport you over there and, and plop you down over there. Oh, you ran these two, this market? We need some help with the market way over here. And so they'd take them and move them out there. All right? And what they would leave behind was essentially kind of the, the, the lower class, working class people. And, and take all of their political structure, all of their uh, leadership and guidance out. And then what they would do is they would bring in other people from all these other conquered lands and resettle them in the area. So what happened with the northern kingdom was the Assyrians came in, they ripped out all of that, and then they started putting all these other people in that then would intermarry and, and, and mingle with the few Jews that were remaining in the area. The offspring of all those kids are what became the Samaritans. And so the full-blooded Jews down in the southern kingdom, in Jerusalem and all that, they looked at these other people with kind of racism and prejudice in their hearts and just say, they're all a bunch of half-breeds. And so that became, hundreds of years, 750 years later, there's still this divide between these people. You still have the Jews of Jerusalem looking down on the Samaritans. You have the Samaritans looking at the the Jerusalem Jews as, oh, they're those arrogant, snotty Jews, you know. And so you've got this divide, this cultural divide that's taking place. So much so that if you know the story about Jesus, uh, when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, That's part of why that story was so shocking to the people that heard it. They're like, a Samaritan would do that? They would be the one to take, Jesus made him the hero of the story, right? A Samaritan, Uh, the, the priest walked by, the Levite walked by, but the Samaritan actually did what he was supposed to do. 
And so when Jesus told that to a bunch of Jews in, in Jerusalem, they'd be like, oh my gosh, how could, how could he say that? Right? That's what was going on. Also what would happen, um, where Jesus was in the, the Galilee region, a lot of times if a Jew was going to head to Jerusalem, they would literally walk around Samaria, way out of their way, add miles, add hours to their trip, just so they didn't have to walk through the land of the Samaritans. Okay? That's important to understand in this story. But as God is doing what God's doing in the lives of these people, Philip, the first opportunity that he has, he's got to go share the gospel somewhere. And he's like, the Samaritans. I bet nobody's went and talked to them yet. I'm going to there. That's where I'm going first. Philip hadn't been there when when Jesus told the disciples, hey, you're going to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. Philip wasn't there. He didn't hear all that. He was just following the Holy Spirit. And when he saw his opportunity, he's like, that's where I'm going. Because I know nobody else is going there. And I'm going to go over there and minister. And so that's what took place. And as he goes there and he begins preaching the gospel, what we read here is that supernatural signs and healings are accompanying the good news of the gospel as it's shared in this brand new territory. God empowering people for the gospel. Which, by the way, is the best way for ministry to happen. Uh, It's when people partner with God to do the work. And this good news that comes to the the Samaritans here brings joy. That's what it says in verse 8. There was much joy in that city. Why? Because they're hearing the gospel and they're being ministered to. Now we get to this particular person that I was telling you we're going to look at a bit here today. Verse 9. It says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip... As he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now here's what we can get out of this about Simon. Simon was like most people in that he was determined to be somebody in his life. Simon was trying to figure out a way to kind of make his mark in the world. He wanted to uh, find greatness, which is really a basic, pretty basic human desire. Most of us, if we're being completely honest, would really like it. There's something that we're just great at, right? Not very many people aspire to average. Someday I'll just be average. You know, if, if, if I could have any wish in the world, I'd just be average. That's not usually what we do, right? Most of the time, no matter what it is that we're into or what we're all about, whether it's sports as a kid, who just says, I just hope I sit the bench some of the time, you know? Maybe it's a lazy kid that doesn't want to play the sport. But for the most part, it's like, no, I want to be the best one on the team. I want to be the one that makes the all-stars. I want to be the one that's like everybody looks at. It, business. If you're in sales, nobody says, well, I hope I kind of meet the minimum requirement. 
No, you want to be like the salesperson of the year. You want to be the one who's the best. You're the one that, that gets the accolades, that gets, gets the, the awards and the, notif- the, the, the notice, people taking notice of you, right? And most people, if given the choice, would choose greatness. Why be common if you could be extraordinary? And Simon found his path to greatness, interestingly here, through magic. Magic. He performed amazing feats. You know, I don't know if he had a nickname, Simon the Amazing, that he, you know, hung a little license plate on his donkey, Simon the Amazing, Amazing Simon. I, I don't know. I'm not sure what he did. Had a cape or had a hat, uh, you know, something where everybody's like, oh, there's Simon, Simon the Amazing. This is, this is awesome. Now, most of us view magic as just tricks and illusions, something for entertainment, not necessarily anything connected to a supernatural power of any kind. Some Bible translations, and maybe ones that you have here with you today, um, use the word sorcery instead of magic. Simon the sorcerer, um, which that carries a connotation that Simon was involved in maybe witchcraft, or there's some sort of supernatural evil power at work. I don't think it's clear from the text which one it is. All it tells us here is that he did something to amaze the people. Enough where people are like, wow, that guy's amazing. All right? Either way, whether he was involved in in that end of things, like supernatural evil powers, or he was just a good entertainer, either way, when Philip preached, Simon recognized that something greater than he had ever imagined was at work. Because when he heard the gospel, it tells us it changed him. And he became a believer. He believed the gospel, was baptized, and continued to learn from Philip's preaching. But, we're going to see here, there were a few things that still had to be dealt with in his heart. All right, look at verse 14. Here's what it says. It says, um, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they were probably very surprised, (laughs) but they also sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now let's stop right there for a second. Now, for those of you who have have, uh, are familiar with this story in Acts, you know that Acts begins with a really supernatural, radical thing happening on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls, and there's this incredible uh, shift in the world, in the spiritual world, when this takes place. Now, as we've talked about that, and as you've heard the gospel before, um, there's, there's kind of a, a progression, sort of a linear path that we understand when we talk about how someone gets saved when someone hears the good news and someone responds to the good news of the gospel. Um, But this particular passage is a little bit confusing and it creates a couple of questions because we're we're used to thinking about it as this this process, right? And and you know that. We we know that what we understand is, hey, the gospel has to be spoken. Somebody's got to speak the gospel and then somebody's got to hear the gospel and understand the gospel, and then if they hear the gospel that's being preached about who Jesus is, he's the, the savior of the world, he's come to forgive us of our sins, we've, got, we've heard this good news of him, that there's hope for eternal life, life after this life, we've heard all that information, and then we choose to believe that, 
At that point, what we say is, all right, now someone has become a believer. They've heard the gospel, they've understood the gospel, they've believed the gospel. And then after that, it's a little bit blurry, but essentially we know usually what happens there is they, they voice their belief, they make a confession of faith, they repent of their sins, uh, they're, they're baptized with water, the, the Holy Spirit fills their lives, and then they begin their path of walking life as a Christian, right? That's kind of the, the structure that we see, okay? We like our theology to be very tidy, and sometimes that's exactly the way it looks. And back in Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read it to you here, after Peter, after the, the Holy Spirit fell on them, and they're uh, speaking in tongues, and then they begin uh, sharing the gospel with all of these people, um, a huge crowd gathers, and if you remember, Peter gives this sermon, and 3,000 people are going to get saved, right? And here's what it says there in Acts 2, 38 to 41. It says, and Peter said to them, the same thing that I just told you, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. All right? Somebody preached. They heard. They understood. They believed. They got baptized. They, the Holy Spirit indwelt them, and they lived happily ever after. Right? Okay. Paul says the same kind of thing in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. He says, In him, Jesus... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That all makes sense. It all seems straight ahead. So what happened here? What happened here? Philip comes into Samaria. He preaches the gospel. They believe. They get baptized. But where's the Holy Spirit? Why is it that then they send up to the guys in Jerusalem and say, come on down because they didn't, get, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit? What's going on here? Um, and I bring this up because this is a, a kind of a, a very dif different um, passage than we see anywhere else in the Bible. So here's the question. Why didn't the Spirit fall upon these baptized believers? I'm going to give you four choices, and then you can decide which you think it is. All right? First off, some people would say, well, they just really weren't believers. Now, I have the biggest problem with this one because it directly contradi contradicts what Luke writes here in verse 12. Right? In verse 12, they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized, both men and women. All right? That just doesn't seem likely to me. I think they were believers. Number two, the next idea would be, well, they were really believers, but they needed a second experience to receive the Spirit, which is a pattern that we should expect, and that laying on of hands is necessary for the Spirit to come upon someone. The problem with that is it contradicts other places in Scripture where it doesn't work that way. All right? And so you've got some churches, even to this day, that would tell you, all right, you can believe. Here's the gospel. Listen to it. And now I'm going to tell it to you, all right, if you got all that, all right, now are you ready for the next step? Then come up here and I'll lay my hands on you and then you can have the Holy Spirit. And only then. Right? Uh, but that's not the way we see it in Scripture. There's other places in Scripture where it happens. I mean, later we'll see in Acts chapter 10 when, when uh, Peter is speaking to the, the Gentiles for the first time. He's not even done talking yet and the Holy Spirit falls on those people. Much less laying hands on them. 
All right, so that's not a pattern, I don't think, that we can, we can hold on to. But some people will point to this very verse and say that's how it's got to be done. Third, here's another option for you. They really were believers, and they had received the Spirit when they believed and were baptized, but just not in a visible way. All right? And with that one, it, it becomes the distinction between being filled with the Spirit and the Holy Spirit coming upon someone. We don't have time to go into all of those details today, um, but I think that's a very legitimate um, description of maybe what's going on here. They believed, they were baptized, they were filled with the Spirit, but there wasn't any sort of external, uh, visible thing yet that had happened. All right? Then the fourth option, and this one I had never thought of before until studying it through this time this week, is that they were really believers, but God did something unique in withholding the Spirit to directly connect Samaritan believers to Jewish believers. Now, let me explain this one a little bit further. Um, Peter, specifically, you know, the Apostle Peter, one of the twelve, kind of the leader of the disciples in so many ways. It's interesting to me, I hadn't noticed this before, but Peter was there when the Holy Spirit fell on the believers in the upper room. Peter was there when the Holy Spirit fell on the Samaritans. And Peter was there when the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles. It's interesting to me that, that God allowed Peter, who was kind of a, um, an unofficial leader uh, at this point. As we go on, we see that actually James' brother Jesus leads the church in Jerusalem. But Peter was still looked up to by everybody. Peter actually got to see with his own eyes not only the risen Lord, but he also got to see the Holy Spirit fall on these groups which ultimately covers the whole world. Um, I think that's, that's, that's very interesting um, that Peter happened to be there. And maybe that's what was going on, that this was just a unique time where God said, I'm going to do things a little different here because I want Peter to be able to be here and see all this. Um, so wherever you land on that, these are some of the different ideas of what could be. But, but also I do want to say this about it too. We make sure that we don't build doctrine and insist on things that aren't clear in Scripture. All right? And you come across a passage like this that causes division in the church and people say, this is the only way, it has to be this way. If it's not clear in Scripture, we're not going to hold on to it as this is doctrine and it cannot move. All right? You may have a very strong opinion about what took place here, but it's not clear in the rest of Scripture. And there's been way too many arguments in the body of Christ over things that aren't crystal clear in Scripture. If God wanted it to be crystal clear, he would have. He would have made it that way for us. And if he wanted it to say, here's the linear progression, here's the 14 things that have to happen, and here they are, 1 through 14, then great, we'll hold on to that and go 1 to 14. But when he doesn't do that, it's silly for us to try to start insisting that, oh, well, unless you've had the hands laid upon you at this point, that's, we're, we're getting lost. Let's not, let's not go there. All right. Um, I do want to say this one other thing here on this. We don't know what sort of visible manifestation accompanied the moment, but it does seem like it was immediate and obvious. All right, whatever happened here when Peter and John laid their hands on these, these believers and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, um, it was obvious. Now, a lot of people then also take this passage and argue, see, they spoke in tongues. doesn't say that. Other people say, oh, no, they just erupted in like praise and worship and they're glorifying God. It doesn't say that either. All right? It doesn't tell us what it was, 
But we can deduce that it was obvious to all. And this is why. Go on to verse 18. Because in verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that none of what you have said may come upon me. When these believers received the Holy Spirit, whatever happened amazed Simon the Amazing. (laughs) When he saw this, he's like, whoa, I got to learn that trick. I got to figure this out. And so it's not surprising that he offered them money. I mean, I, I think probably when he had seen a great trick in the past, he would do that very thing. He'd go up to the other magician and say, that one was super cool. Show me that card trick. I'll, I'll pay you for it. Show me the trick. What's the illusion? How do I pull this one off? And so he just thought, well, this is the way I do it. And that's a really cool trick. They pray for these guys and something happened, whatever it was. It was enough that it was visible, enough that it amazed him, enough to say, I want to buy that. But what he didn't understand is that he was completely off base. And Peter here rebukes him. What's he say? Essentially, he's like, this is not a party trick, Simon. You don't understand what's going on here. There is one who is amazing, and his name's not Simon. (laughs) There's one who's amazing, and and he shares his glory with no man. And if you don't repent and get this sorted out, you're going to be condemned. Now, remember, you may read this and be like, Peter, easy, buddy. Like, that's heavy. (laughs) Like, you're dropping it on this guy. But remember, Peter has seen some pretty heavy things. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Can you imagine how that would have marked Peter? Trying to just lead a church, and people come up, and they're, they're, they're saying, yeah, here, we want to give this money to the church, and the Holy Spirit has to tell Peter, you tell them they're going to die for lying to the Holy Spirit. Guys, I'm, we keep an offering box in the back of the room over here, okay? Like, this would wreck me if one of you came forward and said, hey, we want to offer money to the church, and all of a sudden I have to tell you, mm, you're lying and God's going to kill you. And you drop dead in front of me. Right? That's what Peter, that's what happened with Peter. And not only that, is he's still shocked in this trauma, and they drag out that dead body. Here comes his wife, and the same thing happens again. Like, if I was Peter, then now a little while later, and I come up to something like this, I'd be like, dude, do you understand what you're asking right now? We're not going to mess around with this. This is real. This is God. We're not stepping into that territory. If you don't get things squared away, it could be really bad for you. That's why he's so heavy on Simon here. And it shocks Simon, I believe. And I hope and pray that it, it had the, the effect that was needed. And here's what I want you to see in this. Because I know many of you have heard this story. You've read this before. You've seen it probably many times. But here's what I w- want you to think about. I think what we get here is we get a glimpse of the way that God uses multiple people and multiple voices to raise his children. Philip 
was the one who came and shared the gospel with Simon and his neighbors. Peter now comes and helps bring clarity to Simon in understanding his own motivation and wrong thinking with insight that only Peter had because of Peter's experiences. All right? And so you've got two different voices being spoken into this man's life um, that, that were both being used by God to help him mature and help him grow. And this sort of group input and tag team effort is one of the healthiest ways that we can grow spiritually. We tend, as people, to want to focus on a person to follow after. And we do that. We find our little, our, our, the person that we follow, the person that we pay attention to, and the pe- person that we choose to be influenced by. Paul addresses this in, in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3. Um, there had been an evangelist named Apollos who had gone to Corinth and had shared the gospel with them. And then Paul came along and he, was, did, he helped and other people did too. But here's what he says there. 1 Corinthians 3, he says, What then is Apollos, this other um, co-worker of the Lord? What is Paul saying to him about himself? We're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. We will have certain people that speak important things into our lives, but as Christians, we need to know that no single individual can teach you all you need to know. Only Jesus could have done that. And he chooses to teach us through many voices. All right? This may come as news to you, but your pastor is not your guru. (laughs) Okay? I'm not. And not even pastors that are better than me should be. We're not to be your guru. Your favorite author or your favorite speaker or that one podcaster that you love so much They are not to be the only voice that you listen to. The only one that is the absolute voice of truth is God. He should be exalted to that place only in your life. And yet, he chooses to shape us through group projects. He brings in these other voices and these other people to speak into our lives. He places us into a body of believers As much as I love the technology of being able to stream a service to other people and they can watch the service in their homes, that's good, that's great, and hopefully the message will bless them and encourage them and help them grow. But the rest of the growth has to happen in the body of Christ with the people. I'm not the church. We are the church when we're gathered together. And it's these voices These voices as God speaks into your life and and gives you experiences in life, that truth gets filtered through you and can be delivered to other people. And there are some people here that can minister in ways that other people can't because of what God has let them experience in their lives. And all of those voices are important. And if you isolate yourself from it, you won't get it. And you will grow a little lopsided, (laughs) a little out of balance because you haven't been able to get all of the nutrition that you need from the whole body, all right? It's important that we understand that. 
Now, I will say this. We talk a lot about the importance of seeing transformation in your life at this church. Uh, You don't have to be here very long without hearing us talk about it's important that we be transformed by God. We, We want to do more than just, we want to preach the gospel, yes. We want to see people get saved and put their belief in him, yes. We also want to see them discipled and grown and transformed. Your life should be changing if you were a Christian. I don't care if you've walked with the Lord for 50 years, 60 years. Your life should be changing if you're a healthy believer. Because that's what God does. He continually transforms us. And that transformation is a process. Another theological term that we use for that is called sanctification. You are being made holy by God's work in our lives. That's what sanctification is. And he uses multiple sources to complete the work that he started. He uses the Bible. He uses worship services. He uses pastors. He uses churches, life groups, experiences. And it all takes time. And it's a process that he's taking us through. Now, I will say this. Sometimes when someone is saved, God does just a radical heart surgery all at once. They put their belief in him and all of a sudden addictions are broken and uh, demons are ejected and attitudes are changed all at once. But even then, in the most radical conversions, it's only the start of the process that God wants to do. It's only the beginning. And and there's an ongoing, slower process of healing and change that has to happen. In Simon's case, an event took place that exposed his heart quickly that needed to be addressed. This event was so good for Simon Somebody who had been like he had been and what he had gone through and being the Simon the Amazing, the magician, having this experience was exactly what he needed for him to grow. He would not have been able to see the difference between of putting on the show and actually living a life following the real power of God without this experience. But even then, I'm sure after that, there was needed growth. All right, so as we finish here today, two questions for you. To, to consider as we, we look at this passage. Number one, are you open to the ways and the people that God wants to use to transform your life? Now that might seem like a simple question to say, hey, are you open to this? Are you open to the group project? Are you willing to allow God to work through lots of other sources to speak into your life? But before you answer that quickly, you realize a lot of people aren't. They might say they are, might feel like they are. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll listen to other people, you know. I want, I want people to speak into my life. But they're not really. It's really, okay, well, maybe I respect that person and that person. I guess if they said it to me, I might listen. But other than that, uh-uh. Are you open to how God wants to do that? Sometimes God will have to use a, a, a person maybe you barely even know to harshly rebuke you, um, like Simon had to experience. But more often... God gently guides us through people who know us and love us. But if we shut ourselves off to that, it's hard to receive what it is that God wants to do. And it's usually more than one person in that. So that's the first thing to ask yourself. Are you open to to what God would want to do in that way? And secondly, do you have relationships that are strong enough and deep enough to handle those hard conversations? Do you actually have relationships that are that way? Um, And if not, 
I think it's time to start cultivating them. This is what I mean by that. You may be the sort of person that's kind of closed yourself off to others, and you might say, you know what, I'm going to figure this out. I'll read my Bible, and I'll, me and God, we got this. But what I'm telling you here today is that often God has a lot of other ways that he wants to speak into your heart. And if you're not open to it, it's really hard to receive it. But even if you are open to it, you may not have the depth of relationships with people. You may not have been vulnerable enough or honest enough in those relationships for God to actually speak. And that's a different, that's a different thing. And, and if you don't have those relationships, this is my challenge is, yes, yeah, start cultivating them. They take time. They take effort. Um, I'd like to just say just a word of encouragement to our military families here. And I know we've got several in, in our community here. I, God bless you guys for being part of a church when you're in the military. Uh, not just because of the work that you're surrounded with, but you know that most of the time there's a, there's a short window of time that you're going to be in a church community, right? Because you're going to get transferred. You're going to have to move somewhere else. You're going to have to do something else. And to be brave enough to continue to go from city to city, place to place, and actually invest yourself and be invested in those places, that's huge. So huge. You've got to, you've got to do that. Well done for those of you who have done it. And we've got many that are a key part of this, this church community. Keep that up. Also, another way that we do this here to build those kinds of relationships is through life groups. You, you knew I was going to say that. Um, they're the primary way we try to build deeper community and deeper relationships. Um, and stick with them. And I want to encourage you again. You've got to stick with them. Um, I know you're busy. I'm tired on Friday afternoon <laughs> when it comes time for life group. And there's lots of times I'm like, uh, I don't want to go. Or, oh, I don't want to open the door to let them come. Like, whatever it is. You know, yes, I understand that. But we're doing something more than just spending a Friday night or a Thursday night. What we're doing is we're allowing God to shape us by these other people. We're opening ourselves up of who we really are to let God do what he wants to do in our lives. It will accelerate your growth and who you are as a person in him. We must all have a personal relationship with Jesus, but I don't think that we're supposed to have a solitary relationship with him. You see the difference? God is the one responsible for our growth. He knows what he's doing, and we're called to be part of his group project. Invest yourself in community and expect to be changed. It's God's work. And, and beautifully to me, I think that's what Simon did here. Um, when I read what he says, his response to, to Peter there, when he says, pray, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you've said has come upon me. It sounds to me like he was kind of repenting. You know, I've heard people say, oh, he was a sorcerer and he was always wicked and he's, he's rotten in hell. I don't see any of that in here. I, you're making stuff up, I think. Um, what it seems here is that he recognizes, oh, I was way off. I had no idea. Well, pray to the Lord for me. Let's get things right. All right? And the last verse that we read here today, um, before we finish, Acts 8.25, says, Now when they had testified, meaning Peter and John, and spoken the word of God, uh, the, the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. I don't know if, if Peter and John, when they came here to Samaria to see what was going on, if they'd already had plans to start ministering throughout Samaria. But because Philip paved the way, their ministry expanded as well. Um, they were able to see the gospel spread into this unlikely region 
I, I think, honestly, I think it may have even been off the radar for Peter and John. They're like, okay, well, we've got to figure out what's going on here in Jerusalem. There's persecution, and how are we going to deal with this, and how are we going to help the church survive the persecution? And, and God, through the Holy Spirit, is already like, no, no, no. It's, it's like I told you guys. It's time to expand. It's time to move on. And now, all of a sudden, they, they get called out here and see what's happening in Samaria, and they're like, whoa, the world's a big place. Maybe it's not Jerusalem where we're supposed to focus. Maybe we're suppo- supposed to do this. So again, it's that that group project, right? Philip is, is pushing into areas that help these other guys draw into it. And God reshapes their categories all the way through. So with that, um, I just want to encourage you guys to, to consider that this week. Think about uh, who you are and, and, and where God's called you, where God's put you. And um, hopefully you'll be challenged to accept God's plan for your life, jump into the group project, and let's all grow together. Pray with me. Thank you, God, for your word here today. And I pray, God, that um, some of what I said might have struck a chord with some people here today. We very often want to retreat into ourselves and to isolate ourselves, but that's not what you've called us to. You've called us to community. You've called us to uh, a big picture view of the gospel. And that even includes our own lives. And so, Lord, today I pray that you would open us up to all that you want to do among us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict and challenge and encourage and comfort this church and the people of this church through one another, through these relationships, through this community that you have founded, that you are growing. We are your field. We are your building. We are the work of your hands, Lord. And we want to see you cultivate us and grow us, make us healthy, make us vibrant and alive. Lord, heal us in the places that we need to be healed. Strengthen us in the places that we need strength. And God, I know that uh, as we were talking about in prayer at the, the beginning of our service here today, before service even began, I know that at this time of year, So many people are hurting and in need of a comforting word, a loving word, some encouragement, some kindness. They they want to experience the love, joy, peace, and hope that come from the Christmas season. And I believe that you have called each of us to be those people that deliver the light and the truth of your gospel. And we are the people that you use in this group project, this community project. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show us, open our eyes to the places that we can minister and also open our eyes to the place that you want to minister to us through other people. And may we experience the love of Jesus in the community together and may we take it from this place and expand our horizons. May the the ministry of this church, Lord, expand into the communities around us, wherever it is that you've planted us, wherever it is that you send us, at work, at school, at the grocery store, in our neighborhoods, wherever you've sent us, Lord, may that grow and expand, not for the glory of our church or the name of our church, but but for your glory, for the expansion of the kingdom of God. And may you be brought honor and glory in all of that because you're the only one who's glorious And uh, Lord, we love you and thank you for this day. 
be with us, Lord, as we, we go through our week, as we continue to, to worship now and think about these things and process these things. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our hearts and minds and that you continue to guide us and direct us through the rest of this day. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.